You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Good, we turn to the uh, subject of the inspiration of Scripture, receiving God's words to his people by his Spirit. When we say that the Bible is an inspired book, we don't mean that it is inspiring because lots of things are inspiring and some parts of the Bible may not feel very inspiring, though it is an inspired book. For we tend to evaluate inspiration by what we feel. I'm inspired by this person. I'm inspired by this idea. I'm excited about this. I'm excited about that. But the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture is not that it feels exciting to us, but that it was inspired by God's Holy Spirit. The Bible's words are God's words. We know the mind of God from the mouth of God. And it's through the Spirit that God has caused the Scriptures to be written. There are some specific references to the Holy Spirit in in talking about the inspiration of the Bible writers. So David says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, his word was on my tongue. Or God says to Isaiah, my spirit who is on you, my words that I've put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth. Or Zechariah talks about they, uh, they made their hearts like a rock so as not to obey the law or the words that the Lord of armies had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. Or Jesus says in Mark uh, 12, quoting David's words in Psalm 110, David himself says, by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in 2 Timothy that all scripture is inspired by God and so is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for training, correcting for training in righteousness. Hebrews, quoting Psalm 95, introduces that quotation with, as the Holy Spirit says. Peter writes, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came from the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at the 1 Corinthians passage. That should be 1 Corinthians 2, by the way. We'll look at the 1 Corinthians passage in just a moment. Notice that uh, Peter, uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is inspired by God, that is, the words are inspired by God, Peter says that the people were inspired by God, so they spoke by the Holy Spirit. So, how did God cause the Scriptures to be written? He inspired people. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. But not just the people, but also the words they spoke were inspired by the Holy Spirit. However, it's also true that we, by the idea of the inspiration of the Bible by the Holy Spirit... We're making a bigger claim, and that is, a broader claim, and that is 
that the, the scriptures come from God. That's the big claim. Saying that they're inspired is about how God achieved it. But the big claim is also made in scripture. So uh, extraordinary words when Moses is having fight with God <laughs> over whether he's going to do the job God's called him to do. And he, he's complaining he's not very good at speaking. So God says, uh, well, you, Moses, will speak with him, that is Aaron, and tell him what to say. I'll help both you and him and teach you both what to say. This extraordinary statement next, he'll serve as a mouth for you and you will serve as God to him. So God would say to Moses what God wanted said and then Moses would say to Aaron what God wanted said and then the people would hear it. Or listen to these words uh, uh, of Jer the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and told me, I filled your mouth with my words. It's an extraordinary statement. I filled your mouth with my words. And if you read Jeremiah chapter 1, you'll find that through the words that Jeremiah speaks, kingdoms rise and fall. They're powerful words. Or Zechariah in Luke 1, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Or Peter, uh, speaking in Acts 2, since he, David, was a prophet, he spoke concerning the, the resurrection of the Messiah, quoting Psalm 16. Hebrews 4, he, God, speaking through David. And uh, the wonderful description of the revelation, uh, the book of Revelation, Introduced by these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him, so, okay, there's God and then there's Jesus Christ to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testified to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's quite a tag team, isn't it? God, Christ, his angel, and then to John, who then wrote down these words in the book of Revelation. Now the big picture is that God is able to speak in human language. And the big picture is that God is able to communicate his words in human language to human authors to write down for our benefit. You might think that God is too big a God and too great a God, too transcendent a God, too almighty a God to bend down and speak in human language which even young people can understand. But a God who can bend down and send his son as a human being is certainly a God who can bend down and condescend to us and speak in human language. And, miracle upon miracle, we Christians believe that the words that God has spoken are not only effective in the original language, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, 
but they are so powerful that they work in translation as well. You see, if you go into a, uh, a, a mosque, you'll hear the Quran read in Arabic. When I was in Pakistan, I saw uh, little Pakistani boys who didn't speak Arabic learning the Quran by heart, not understanding what they were learning. Okay, imagine that, learning a book by heart without understanding what you're learning. And if you go to a Jewish synagogue, the scriptures are, of course, uh, read in Hebrew. But we believe that God's word is so powerful in their original language that they can be effectively and powerfully translated into any language. That is an extraordinary work of the Spirit, not only to cause the words to be written, but also to bring them home to human hearts, whatever our mother tongue. As Augustine says, God seems so close to us when he speaks our language. God seems so close to us when he speaks our language. I run uh, training courses for preachers, and uh, one of the preachers at uh, one of the courses last week was preaching on the, when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. Do you remember that story? Uh, and when he, he takes her hand and says, Talitha kum, which is Aramaic, that would be the language they used at home. For a little girl, get up. Isn't that lovely? Jesus spoke the very kind of words that her parents would have spoken to her, trying to get her to wake up in the morning. But he spoke those words, little girl, get up, to raise her from the dead. Isn't that extraordinary? But that's a picture of God speaking to us in words that we can receive uh, at, in the deepest level of our lives and hearts. So, uh, I, I, I uh, oh, let me tell you the story of Robert Morrison. Robert Morrison was a, was a Scottish missionary who wanted to go into China. And he never got further inland than Macau but he spent his life translating the Bible into Chinese, the first Protestant translation of the Bible. Isn't that extraordinary? What a gift to leave behind, a translated Bible. And what a powerful gift to leave behind. He thought all he had managed to do was to translate the Bible. Would you believe, in the process of translating the Bible, he created the first English-Chinese dictionary and the first Chinese-English dictionary. He took them back to the United Kingdom, offered them to the universities of Oxford and Cambridge. They said, we have no need of these. So he offered them to the University of London, to what eventually became the School of Oriental and Asian Studies, where they still remain. Thank God for Bible translators. So, biblical inspiration. Uh, we say in the creed, if we say the creed, we believe in the Holy Spirit who spoke by the prophets. Now, uh, as I've seen, we believe in inspiration because in the narrow, uh, we, the narrow evidence is the specific references to the Holy Spirit and Scripture, but the broader sense of inspiration is given by God, 
we've also seen those broader references uh, just a moment ago. And I made the point that both the words and the people were inspired. Uh, lots of uh, theologians today think that God gave the ideas and the people then spoke or wrote them in their own words. But uh, do you remember when Jesus says that not a, a jot or a tittle of the law will pass away? Not, not a little bit of the law, even, even you know, with the, the letter T, which is like a cross, isn't it? The, the tittle would be the crossbar, the sidebar. And Jesus is saying, not the slightest portion, morsel of the law will pass away, but all will be fulfilled. So Jesus not only believed in verbal inspiration, but in the inspiration of the very letters by which the words were written down. That's a very powerful view of inspiration. So we, But we also need to assert both the human author and the divine author. If you read through uh, Hebrews 4, 1 to 11, you'll find that uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about God giving these words, but also David speaking these words. So we have to hold uh, on very strongly to the idea that these words are God's words, but in every case they're also human words. So we have to respect, uh, as God did, both the human author and the divine author. But just think how much God respected the humanity of the human authors, their historical context, their language, their literary style, that is, narrative, poetry, prophecy, proverbs, etc., their peculiarities. He dealt with them as human beings. He didn't make them superhuman beings. He didn't ignore their humanity. He used it and achieved his perfect verbal revelation. I love that moment in Hebrews where the writer says, it says somewhere, and you'd think that Psalm 8, you see. You'd think God could have said, Psst, it's Psalm 8. But no, the writer of Hebrews can't remember exactly where it was, but it says somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him? Okay, so he even copes with someone with a bad memory. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that comforting? And you know, it's actually a picture of the way in which God does good works in us, isn't it? Because the good works that you do are God's works through you, but you do them in a way which is particular to you. You're a woman, not a man. You like music, you don't like music. You're a scientist. You're a fusspot. You're lazy. You're energetic. You're enthusiastic. You're bored. God works through us, you see, even when we don't know he's working through us. You know, most of the good work Christians do, they don't know they're doing. It's wonderful. I met a an old lady after church one day. Uh, she was very poor. She lived in Paran in the housing estate there. She said to me, I'm so pleased because uh, God is, the, uh, the council has given me money so I can buy food and cook lunch for my neighbours. They don't like Meals on Wheels. So She had a Zimmer frame. She'd go down to the market every day, buy the food, take it back to her flat, cook lunch for her neighbours, and she said, I always buy a bunch of flowers so I can put a flower in everybody's tray to let them know they're special. Now, the beautiful thing is she wasn't boasting. She was saying, isn't this a wonderful privilege? And I thought, what a great work of God in her life. She's not showing off. She's sharing with me her joy in serving others. See, 
So if, if, I, if I'd said to her, those are wonderful, good works, she would have said, oh, no, no, I'm just helping out. But see, this is a picture of how God works in us as individuals. You, you may wish you were somebody else. I spent a lot of my ministry wishing I was somebody else who had more gifts and more energy than I did. What a waste of time. Eventually God said, just shut up and get on with your job if you wouldn't mind. Stop complaining. That's right. So please just accept who you are and know that God can use you just as you are, as he used the Bible writers just as they were. Uh, the Revelation of John is written in very bad Greek. He would have failed Greek 1 at Ridley College, I can tell you. But God even uses bad Greek. If you're Greek, that's a great encouragement, of course. Uh, yet, uh, so, we need to assert both the human author and the, divi the divine author and the human author. Yet we also need to read Scripture carefully, yes, we let, lest we misinterpret the revelation. We should read it, as the Reformers did, literally, which actually they meant reading, a, reading it according to its literary meaning. When they said literally, they didn't mean that everything was literally true, do you see? So, let's take the parable of the Good Samaritan. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. Did that actually happen? We don't know if it happened or not. Does it matter if it happened? No, it doesn't matter if it happened. It's a parable, it's a story which Jesus told to make a point about uh, caring for others and so on. Uh, the, we read in the Psalms that the Lord's eyes run to and fro throughout the earth. That means God sees everything. It doesn't mean God's eyes run to and fro throughout the earth. God doesn't have a body. He doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have an arm. Yet we say the Lord's arm has done this. His mighty arm has done this. We don't take that literally as if God had a mighty arm. Do you see? So that means we have to understand the literature we're reading uh, to make sense of the Bible because God respected the literary style of the authors. Okay, and we need to hang on to the twofold work of the Spirit, both the original work of the Spirit uh, and the ongoing inspiration that, that he continues to speak the same words, and also the Spirit's immediate illumination. You know when you're reading the Bible and a verse jumps out at you and you think, oh, I've never seen that before. You've read it many times, but all of a sudden God brings it home to your heart because you need it now. Well, praise God, that's a wonderful work of the Spirit. Or you're walking along thinking about something and all of a sudden a Bible verse jumps into your mind which is just the right verse for you or perhaps just the right verse for somebody else you're talking to. Well, that's a work of the Spirit of God continuing to speak his words into our lives and our hearts. Some descriptions of the inspiration of the Bible. Benjamin Warfield, the Bible writers don't conceive of the Scriptures as a human product then breathed into by the Holy Spirit, but as a divine product 
produced through the instrumentality of men. This is plenary, that is, full verbal inspiration. Uh, J.C. Ryle, I believe that in some marvellous manner the Holy Ghost made use of the reason, the memory, the intellect, the style of thought, and the peculiar mental temperament of each writer of the Scripture. There is both a divine and a human element in the Scripture, and while the men who wrote it were really, really and truly men, the book they wrote and handed down to us is really and truly the Word of God. Well, John Stott, the Bible is both divine and human in its authorship. Therefore, we must neither affirm its divine authorship in a way as to deny the free activity of the human authors, nor affirm their active cooperation in such a way that to deny that through them God wrote the word. Yet, we also need to say that Scripture itself illustrates various expressions of inspiration. So it's very clear that God dictated the law to Moses and he wrote it down. Exodus 20 verse 1, uh, God spoke these words. Exodus 24 4, Moses wrote down the book of the covenant. So what's Moses doing? He's hearing God, whether it was an audible voice or whether God put the words into his mind. I think it was an audible voice actually. And then Moses wrote down what he heard. But uh, how's this for an experience of inspiration? Uh, Paul's writing to Colossians, to the Colossians, uh, and he's talking about, in the end of chapter 1, how much he's uh, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom to present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, he says, struggling with all his strength that works powerfully within me. Then he says, I want to know how greatly I'm struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in person. Paul had not been to Colossae. He did not know the Colossians, but he'd heard from Epaphras about them, so he was struggling in writing the right letter for them and for the people in Laodicea. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined, knit together in love, that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Don't think that Paul sat down and kind of wrote automatically. No, he says, this is hard work. I don't know you. I've heard what you need, and I'm working hard to communicate it to you by the letter. So Paul says he's working hard, and then I love the fact that in chapter 4, he says that Epaphras is working hard in praying for you. So as Paul's sweats down from Paul's brow as he's writing Colossians, thinking, oh, what comes next? What should I say? What should I leave out? Paphras is in the other room praying just as hard, sweating in his prayers that God would do what God, want, what, uh, God wants to do through Paul and through Epaphras' prayers and make these Colossians mature in their faith in Jesus Christ. So there are various ways in which uh, the Bible was inspired. If you read Psalm 110, you'll find it includes uh, two quotations from God, direct words from God, and the rest is words of David. But both the direct quotations from God and the words of David are together, as, as Jesus said, inspired by the Holy Spirit.
Now, I want to pause for a moment and give you uh, a minute to prepare an answer to the question that somebody will ask you later in the week. What did you learn in the first session on Monday? Don't look at me, I'm not inspiring. What struck you from the first session on Monday? I often encourage people to listen to Bible talks and to sermons with two ears. I say, listen to this with two ears, one ear for yourself and one ear for somebody else. Because I often find that after I've heard a, a sermon or a Bible talk, a week later somebody asks me a question and I think, oh, I heard something about that recently. So you see, what God is doing now is teaching you for your benefit and teaching you for somebody else's benefit as well. So you're learning and being trained at the same time. So it's worth thinking, how, could I, how, could, how would I say this to somebody else who asked me what was going on on Monday? Well, now let's think about the uh, Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Um, I tried to show you uh, in the first two sessions how much Jesus respected the Old Testament. No, more than that, <laughs> that he lived by it. And my theory is that if that's good enough for Jesus, that's pretty important for us as well. But then what about the New Testament? I'd like to take, take you to the promises in John's Gospel about what will happen to the disciples after Jesus has died and been raised from the dead. Uh, he's going away, and this is of benefit to them. So, here are the references, John 14, 15 to 17. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I'll ask the Father. He'll give you another counsellor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Verses 25 and 26. I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the counsel of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have told you. Well, wasn't that fulfilled in the writing of the Gospels? He'll remind you of everything I've told you. So they remembered what he told them and wrote it down in the Gospels. Chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, the last two verses of 15. When the Counselor comes, the one I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he'll testify about me. That is, 
he'll witness to Christ. Well, he did, and just you just think of uh, Paul writing Colossians or Ephesians or Peter writing 1 Peter. They're wit- they're wit- they're, that's a result of the Spirit's witness about Christ. Uh, and uh, chapter 16, uh, verses 17 to 15. John 16. If I don't, it's your benefit I go away. If I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I'll send him to you. When he comes, he'll convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment, about sin because they do not believe in me, righteousness because I'm going to the Father, you no longer see me, and judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. So there's more things they have to learn after Jesus' death and resurrection and the sending of the Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. He won't speak on his own. He'll speak whatever he hears. He'll declare to you what is to come. He'll glorify me because he'll take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. That is why I told you that he'll take from what is mine and will declare it to you. Well, when Jesus sent out the disciples, he said, he who, the one who receives you receives me, and the one who receives me receives the one who sent me. And when he sent out his disciples and his apostles to the, uh, the, Roman, to the Roman Empire, to the Roman world, then they also took this, rev, this further revelation, this all the truth that Jesus had planned. Truly the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Quotation from Ephesians chapter 2. But the work of the Holy Spirit in creating the New Testament is put uh, even more clearly, I think, from later on uh, in 1 Corinthians 2. In the notes on the board it has three, but it should be two. I failed the last maths exam I did. I got five out of a hundred, which wasn't tremendously good. Even I, with my limited mathematical ability, could work out that wasn't a very good mark. And I think it was probably for a neat margin. Anyway, I'm not very good on numbers, but here we are, 1 Corinthians 2. Now, please remember the context that Christ has talked in uh, 1 Corinthians 1 about Christ as the power and wisdom of God. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's the power of God to us who are being saved. For it's written, 119, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. That is true in the cross. The greatest sign of God's power was the death of Jesus on the cross. You want a sign of God's power? It was Jesus' death on the cross. You want a sign of God's wisdom? Well, we see wisdom in God's creation, don't we? 
We see wisdom, the wisdom of God in the way our bodies work. We see the wisdom of God in ordering human communities and so on. But what, what is the greatest evidence of God's wisdom? The, Paul's answer is the cross of Christ. And then he says, well, actually, it's not only Christ crucified uh, the power and wisdom of God, but actually God, God has created the church in exactly the same way. Look at 26 to the end. Uh, consider your call. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. In God, instead, God has chosen, look around the room, what is foolish in the world. To shame the wise and look around the room, God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Look around the room again, God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world and viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. Isn't that splendid? And the principle of Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God, is the way in which God thinks about the church. It's how he created the church with weak people like us. And it's also how Paul does his ministry. Two, chapter 2. I did not come with the brilliance of speech or wisdom, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you. I always thought of Paul as a really powerful person before I was a Christian, before I read 1 Corinthians. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Well, what was the demonstration of the Spirit's power in Paul's preaching? We go on, verse 6. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age <coughs> who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom, a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. That is, the wisdom of God is Christ crucified. We've just seen in chapter 1. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, what they saw was a powerless and feeble and foolish man, Jesus of Nazareth. But who was actually in front of them? The Lord of glory. If they'd had God's wisdom, they would have known who he was, the glorious Son of God the Lord Jesus Christ, the Saviour of the world. But the wisdom of the world blinded them to the wisdom of God. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart has conceived, God has prepared for those who love him. That isn't talking about our future. That's talking about Christ and him crucified. No one could have imagined it. But God has prepared these things, that is Christ crucified, for those who love him. <clears throat> well, we know what God did through Jesus, but how do we know that what we know about what God through, did through Jesus is true? You see, Jesus could have come and died on a cross, and if God hadn't explained it, we wouldn't know what it meant. Did it mean that God didn't like Galilean carpenters? Did it mean that it was foolish to fight against the power of Rome? 
Did it mean that there was a power imbalance in Palestine at the time? Well, it, it meant those things. No, it didn't mean that God didn't like Galilean carpenters. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. They did like Galilean carpenters and other carpenters as well. There's a carpenter here. God loves you as well. Okay. <laughs> but what did it actually mean? Well, verse 10. God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we've not received the Spirit of the world or worldly wisdom, but the Spirit who comes from God, that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. The we here, by the way, is Paul and his fellow apostles. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? God not only reveals the truths by his Spirit, but the words by which Paul can explain the truths. The person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit. It's foolishness to them. Uh, the spiritual person can evaluate everything. When I was a young Christian, uh, the theory was that there were some Christians who were spiritual Christians and some who were fleshly Christians. You had to graduate from being a fleshly Christian to become a spiritual Christian. That's not what Paul means here. He means that the people, the person without the Spirit is a person in the world who isn't a Christian. Well, he says later on in 1 Corinthians, you're all baptized in the Holy Spirit, you see. You all have the Spirit. So he's here talking about the rulers of this world and the world which regards the death of Jesus as a mistake, an act of futility. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him, but we, we apostles, have the mind of Christ. They have the mind of Christ because they heard from the mouth of God, through the Spirit, the mind of God and the mind of Christ. Do you remember at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul talked about the demonstration of the Spirit and power. Evangelical Christians often talk about the authority of Scripture. And I believe in the authority of Scripture. But actually the main claim the Bible makes about itself is its power. You've been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1. Jesus says you've been made clean by the words I have spoken to you. How did Jesus clean the disciples? By the words he spoke to them. Or Isaiah 55, my word won't return to be empty, but will accomplish that which I purpose, God says. So this is wonderful. When you read the Bible, you're not just reading something which is true, you're reading something which is powerful, the powerful words of God. Are they authoritative words of God? Yes, they are. You must take them seriously. But do they have the power to change you? Yes, they do. So the answer when you've read the Bible is not, have I submitted to it or have I understood it, but has it changed me? Is it changing me? 
What change does God want to achieve in me through these words? What's, what, is, what is God's power through the, these words trying to affect in me? That's a great way of reading the scriptures and trying to understand what they're on about. What is God trying to achieve through these words? You know, we don't, we don't, we don't often say words without intention, do we? we? You know, when we say, you know, come for breakfast or something like that, we mean come for breakfast. When we say, I love you, we mean I love you. When we say go away, we mean go away. That is, words are meant to achieve something. Uh, you smell. That's, you know, that's meant, something like that's meant to achieve something. Go and have a bath, for goodness sake, you know. Uh, well, God's words are trying to achieve something. They're not just revealing things which are true. They're transforming words. They're changing words. You know, I, 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 I'm terrified uh, in a Bible kind of focused church that it will, it, will, it will degenerate into a kind of Bible quiz, you know. We are, you know what are your small groups called? BLT. <laughs> sure, you're in your BLT group. And someone asked the question, what's the name of Moses' grandmother? And Smarty Pants in the corner knows the answer. I don't know what it is, but Smarty Pants in the corner knows. And we all think, oh, he's the, he, he or she, they're, they're, the, they're, the, they're the keen Christian here, you see. But you can have your mind full of Bible trivia and not be changed by the Bible. That's the tragedy. You can know all the answers and not be holy. You can know all the truth and not be transformed. All Scripture is inspired by God. Well, that's a lovely verse about the inspiration of Scripture and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. And please notice that our focus should be on uh, not on our feelings or impressions but on the living and abiding Word of God God's words to his people by his spirit about the Son. Someone once said to me uh, at the church I was at, a minister at, it's wonderful that God gave us the Bible, but even more wonderful that he speaks directly into our hearts today. I said, well, uh, the trouble is the, the Bible is the certain word of God and impressions of what God wants you to do may be right and may be wrong. That's the lesson of 1 Corinthians 14. You have to test prophecies. You don't just believe them. Now, uh, do I get spiritual hunches? Yes, I do. It's a, it's a great gift uh, which I use in my counseling. But I don't, I'm not convinced they're true until they're proven to be true. The only certain word of God is the Scripture. Well, Stephen... Uh, in a fairly rude moment in Acts chapter 7, says to those about to kill him, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And Hebrews says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says through Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We are great talkers. We are great talkers to God. But we need to be listeners. Easy to talk about God, 
but we need to let God talk to us, not just as individuals, but as a church. Let's be open to God's Holy Spirit.